to Blue Dumont Carey. Thank you, Harry. So a couple Sundays ago, I presented to you a brief synopsis of my simplistic understanding of the evolution in humanity's of humanity's thinking about God. Remember that? It's just a couple weeks ago. At the beginning of the sermon, I said to you, I sure am glad that Jerry Keeney is not here to take this apart. But he's here today, so what a mistake I've made. First, I said that I believe that humanity from the very beginning has an intuition for the Creator, a God space built into their beings. And in the beginning, people use that intuition to explain weird stuff by saying God must be in it. God must be in the water or the fire or the earthquake and anything else that was mysterious. Soon, God not only caused the weird stuff, he not only was in the weird stuff, God must be the weird stuff. So there is a plethora of gods, a water god and a fire god and a sun god and a god of all the unusual things. And as the evolution of God continued, human beings began to use the idea of God to justify human behaviors and God became a warrior God, a God of vengeance and retribution, a God who hates the same people you hate. The next step in the evolution of our thinking about God turned God from warrior to protector and the one who keeps order in society. God becomes the rule maker. And God orders the world into a workable system with punishments and judgments for those who break the rules. And finally, as I figure it, the apex in the evolution of our thinking is that God is not only concerned about the rules, but about creation as well. The concern is based in the concept of love. God loves that which he has created. And to go one step further, not only does God love that which he created, but God is, by God's very nature, love. It is the essence of who God is, love. And for followers of Jesus, there is an understanding that God is love, and that we see in Jesus what God is love looks like. These foundational truths in my life are two things. God is love, and Jesus embodies and models that love. Now, on to a different characteristic of God. The Bible also talks about judgment. A lot. Granted, different judgment episodes in the Scripture reflect different eras in the evolutionary process, but the idea of judgment runs throughout the scripture from the garden to the flood to the plagues to the creators of the golden calf to the poor guys who tried to keep the ark from falling to the Baal prophets on Mount Carmel to Jesus' parable about goats and sheep 
to the great judgment scenes in Revelation. And judgment, I think as most of us understand it, is usually perceived as a negative where we get ours for all the lousy stuff we've done. And many of us were raised in religious settings where we were taught to be afraid of God the judge. We believe that if we did something wrong, if we took a cookie out of the cookie jar or we said a bad word, God was waiting, just waiting for us to slip up so that God could judge us as bad. And here is what I know. Some of you are still still afraid of that God, the God who judges you. But God is love, and we are taught that love casts out fear. So, how does it work? How does judgment fit into a theology where God is love? The Bible and other religion scriptures as well portray God as the final judge, the one who passes judgment on human beings. And we tend to think of this of judgment in these contravening terms so that the idea that God is love and the idea that God is judge can create major problems for a person who thinks like I think. So here's my take. Here's how I try to understand God is love and God the judge. God is love. It is God's nature. It is God's character. It is God's persona. It is God's essence. So if God is love and God is judge as well, that judgment has to be based in, take a guess, love. It has to. Unconditional, gracious, merciful love. It just can't be any other way. So judgment doesn't serve to exact punishment or retribution or vengeance. Rather, judgment is intended to make things right. Earl Nightingale, you guys know the name? He was a writer and an author back in the 50s and 60s, and he wrote several books, and one of the things that he wrote, which I thought was so interesting, when you judge others, you do not define them, you define yourself. And I think when we look at God as judge, we can see the definition of God in the judging. What might we learn about God by the way God judges? What do we learn when we look at some passages of Scripture that depict judgment scenes. Now, this is just a super small sample, and I have chosen things that fit my argument. Don't get me wrong. And there's lots of room to argue. But I think it's telling. Amos 8 is a passage of judgment. First, the sin. Hear this, you that trample on the needy and bring ruin to the poor of the land, You that cheat on the balances so the weights aren't correct. You will buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Now in that passage, what or who is being judged? 
It is those who trample on the poor. It is those who are corrupt, using their power to take advantage over the poor and needy. And God in the passage says, Surely I will never forget any of their deeds. And then the threat of judgment, just a few verses down. On that day, says the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on all loins and baldness on every head. I don't know when baldness became a judgment, but it is in Amos. The point of the passage is clear. It is a call for justice for the poor, for the underdogs, for the under-resourced. And it is a statement about the absolute reality that God stands with the dispossessed. And many of the judgment passages in the scripture, rather than being about literal passing of a sentence, are about admonishing those who are mistreating the least of these to get their act together and start acting with integrity and justice. So the judgment scene is not so much about a judgment in the future as it is an admonishment in the present to start living it right, to care for people, to reach out to people, to not take advantage of those who are in worse positions than you are. Now let's turn to Jesus' great judgment parable. You all know it well. And we have to remember that Jesus embodies the way God is, even as he tells this parable in Matthew chapter 25. And the parable goes like this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on the right side, and the left and the goats on the left. The king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will say to him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and helped you? And the king will answer, truly, I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me. Then he'll say to those at his left hand, you that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will answer, when did that happen? Then he will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishments, but the righteous to eternal life. Please understand that this is a parable and not an actual depiction of judgment. And please, please, please notice Jesus' point. 
that he is in the struggling and the hurting and the mistreated. And when we ignore them, we are ignoring Jesus himself. The point of the parable is to remind us, encourage us, admonish us to care for the struggling. Judgment is about coming to a new understanding of the way life is supposed to work. Now, when I hear modern evangelical leaders make ridiculous claims that this tragedy or that tragedy is God's judgment because of gay people or feminism or secularism or allowing people to practice the religion of their choice or whatever, I think to myself, if this tragedy is really an act of God's judgment, Scripture would indicate that it would be because of our mistreatment of the poor and the downtrodden and our mistreatment of the very people the evangelical leaders are blaming for the judgment. Frankly, I think an earthquake is an earthquake. I think a hurricane is a hurricane more influenced by climate change than God's judgment. A terrorist attack is a terrorist attack, and behind that attack are a number of variables, but God's judgment is not one of them. I think a mass shooting is a mass shooting because the wrong people have the wrong kind of weapons that can kill large numbers of people. To blame tragedies, natural or human, as judgments of God is dishonest because it perverts perverts the very nature of God. God is love. And any judging God does comes from the depths of God's very character. Love. Unconditional, gracious, merciful. Amen.